A couple of years ago, David Archer published a paper uh, on why moral philosophers are not and should not be moral experts. And I was so intrigued by that paper that I said, oh, there is something wrong with his argument. So I uh, wrote a reply, uh, both published at uh, the journal Bioethics. And after that, I received uh, several requests for uh, review papers on more expertise. So and I find some of the arguments uh, in the debate not really convincing. So I started to, I started to think about uh, a project on moral expertise uh, very recently and uh, also related issues um, and applied for some funding. And uh, I just started, so to speak, my project on moral expertise. Um, right now, at the moment, I'm working on two papers. One paper that I do not present today that is on moral testimony and moral expertise. And the second one is on uh, moral experts. And uh, today I present a revised and extended version of my talk that I gave uh, in Paris a couple of months uh, ago. So there, really, the question is, what are the morally relevant features of moral experts, do they also necessarily have to be motivated by their own moral prescriptions? Uh, so this is um, what I would like to, to do today. So first I will present the question, and then I will have rather long preliminary remarks in order to pave the way for our point, namely what are the relevant features of moral experts I will present the cognitive skill model and then the critics uh, that uh, think the cognitive skill model is not enough. We also need some practical skills, so to speak. And I will then provide a critique of the critique of the cognitive skill model and I will end with some conclusions. As you see here, when we are at slide 29, the talk is finished, or is over, so to speak. Okay, so let's... Uh, Get started. This is uh, the question. Suppose that in a search for a moral expert, one came upon an individual with apparent descriptive moral expertise, an individual who provided wise moral advice supported by reasoning, evidence, etc., but who herself regularly failed to be motivated to act on this advice and in fact seemed wholly unmoved by her own prescriptions. Ought we be wary of the advice of this apparently indifferent? Uh, expert, uh, Colby. And he goes even further uh, by claiming that if a moral expert is not motivated by his or her own moral expert advice, uh, this is a counter evidence for his own moral or her own moral expertise. And we will see whether this is really true or what we can do uh, with that. So first I would like, I would like to show three possible options in the, in the debate, and then would like to uh, briefly uh, go over some um, um, uh, philosophers who think that moral expertise and moral experts, that is a very strange thing, what are you talking about, so to speak, and then I will um, uh, present some working assumptions and so that we can go further. So basically, when you link moral expertise and moral experts, you can either say, yes, there is moral expertise, 
And yes, we have moral experts. Another point is moral expertise, yes, but there are no moral experts, so to speak, for whatever reasons. And obviously this, to say that there is no moral expertise and then you want to claim there are moral experts, that is obviously impossible. But also people would say, no, there is no moral expertise and there is no or there are no moral experts. So all the um, basically um, literature could be linked to these three um, solutions, right? So keep that in mind uh, when we go along. Broad says, and we will discuss this, it is no part of the professional business of moral philosophers to tell people what they ought or ought not to do. Moral philosophers as such have no special information not available to the general public about what is right and what is wrong. Nor have they any call to undertake these rotatory functions which are so adequately performed by clergymen and politicians. Okay. What does it mean? So we can at least see three arguments uh, here. One argument, the argument from minding your own business, that is basically it is not part of the moral philosopher's job to tell people what they should do. We had this when you think back in medical ethics, bioethics, the discussion between paternalism on the one hand and autonomy on the other hand. Uh, in earlier times, medical doctors were quite paternalistic, so to speak. And only in the last couple of decades, um, uh, the idea of informed consent uh, came to the fore. And one can relate this idea uh, to his first point. People are autonomous beings, therefore uh, they should not be paternalized, so to speak. The second point, argument from moral agency, one can say all persons so to speak, are moral agents, the moral philosopher does not possess a unique moral knowledge about what is right and what is wrong that is unavailable, so to speak, to the lay person, to the lay people. Okay? Um, but still, you can say um, people are different with respect to their cognitive skills, they are different with respect to their abilities, so on and so forth. So that is really a, 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 a big difference that then you can say moral agency, yes, but there are uh, uh, definitely, uh, uh, when you rank this, um, differences in what you can uh, with respect to ethical reasoning and decision making, so to speak. The third point, that is um, the argument from uh, different uh, social functions. So. Um, and that is basically, moral philosophers should not admonish people, the moral philosopher should not guide other people in normative matters. Interestingly, um, a couple of decades ago, I think three decades, uh, uh, roughly speaking, Gerd Achenbach, a, a German colleague, opened up the first philosophical praxis uh, um, in our times. So philosophical counseling, is obviously something uh, that uh, is en vogue and uh, more and more philosophers also decide to um, um, uh, do philosophical counseling. It's almost like in, in, in North America in the, in, in the States when people, they have their own shrink. You know, they go on a weekly basis to their uh, 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 doctor, so to speak, to a psychiatrist and 
then afterwards they feel good, so to speak. Okay. A critique of uh, Rawls' position. Uh, two points. First, uh, doing ethics was more or less identical with doing metaethics. And that is very true. That is the uh, particular historical background. During the, during the time of Broad and Ayer, for example, the field of ethics was <coughs> mainly concerned with meta-ethical questions, semantics of moral terms, moral ontology, moral epistemology. And the areas of normative ethics, so to speak, or applied ethics, were not really the main focus of professional moral philosophers at that time. So therefore, basically the very idea that moral philosophers that are usually concerned with um, meta-ethics could provide any reasonable and correct answers to important normative issues and applied questions was simply not comprehensible. And I think Frey in 1978 uh, um, put that really uh, um, in, in, in correct words. Um, at that time, moral philosophy was rather meta-ethics. Of course, there are um, exemptions, but uh, the broad range of moral philosophers were occupied, so to speak, with meta-ethical questions. So therefore, one can understand a little bit better why that was the case. Um, then the rise of applied ethics, the advent of important moral questions in the late 60s, 70s, so to speak, in particular against the background of the social civil rights movements, uh, in the US, but also in the newly established fields. Think about medical ethics, and here in particular the Hastings Center or the Kennedy Institute of uh, uh, Ethics Center. Um, they were concerned with medical ethics, but also um, at that time animal ethics and environmental ethics were quite uh, strong and prompted many more philosophers to turn away from meta-ethical questions more to applied questions. Uh, some names, think about Beecham and Childress, Principles of Biomedical Ethics, 1979, for example. That is the Georgetown mantra. So basically, um, a lot of uh, medical doctors around the world would work with their theory, their four principles, and try to apply these principles on a daily basis. Peter Singer, Animal Liberation, 1975, for example. Or Hans Jonas, the imperative of responsibility, 1979. So that is really the, uh, um, the, the, the key uh, authors. But there are many more, of course, that um, we can see the rise of applied ethics came 60s, 70s, so to speak. Frey, what does he say? He says, the question of whether I am a moral expert <coughs> is linked in its normative aspect with the adequacy of my normative ethic, and until I can demonstrate that my theory is adequate, for which purpose I first need to specify and then go on to justify some test of adequacy, I cannot even begin to satisfy the normative aspect to claims of moral expertise. So what does that mean? Basically, in his paper, his claim is there is currently no test of adequacy for ethical theories. Therefore, we are unable to justify a normative ethical theory. And therefore, since there's no justified ethical theory, no one can claim to be A, a moral expert who has B, 
more expertise. Right? So Frey holds the view that the possession of an adequate ethical theory is a necessary condition of being a moral expert and eventually of having moral expertise. The additional and interesting point is that he talks about utilitarianism as, as one example and he says even if um, you have a, a utilitarian account, uh, you remain an expert on um, utilitarianism, so to speak. And that is his point, utilitarianism is not a justified ethical theory. That is his uh, point. So therefore, um, we can't really talk about uh, moral experts or moral expertise because we do not have the proper tools, so to speak, at hand. Against Frey, um, Kaplan mentioned some points, more reasoning in applied ethics. Uh, do not use, so to speak, uh, the top-down model of ethical reasoning for applied ethics. I will just jump uh, forward one slide, but then move back so that you can see that. So the idea really is that, uh, at least at that time, but still you find that quite uh, prevalent, you have a particular moral theory, and then you just add the empirical data, and uh, you have the moral principle that is justified by the theory, and the rules are justified by the principle, or principles in turn, and the moral judgments are in turn justified by the moral rules. So that means the cogency of um, the particular moral theory goes all the way down to the moral judgment. Okay? So the possibility of the moral judgment, to put in different terms, is really linked to uh, a well-justified moral theory, so to speak. And when we work in applied ethics, that is not really how people come and arrive uh, to their uh, arrive at moral judgments. In particular, in medical ethics, for example, people wouldn't use this type of of uh, reasoning. Um, the second point: uh, clarification of issues <coughs> by using, so to speak, complementary theories and individual concepts in order to highlight and clarify certain particular moral issues. The third point, well-trained, that is knowledge of moral theories, traditions, and paradigms that are most defensible. So that is a very important point that uh, um, uh, one should uh, keep in mind. Also the idea of practical wisdom, that means how to pick and choose among theories and traditions uh, to specific problems that are appropriate to answers to specific problems. Think about here Tomasma and Pellegrino who use uh, um, the idea of practical wisdom in the medical context in order to uh, solve uh, uh, problems, so to speak. And another point is casuistical reasoning. That means you, you look for paradigm cases, look for analogical reasoning, for example. So these points uh, they are very important in applied ethics and you really can't, uh, so to speak, uh, come with this very rigid and uh, um, uh, not really flexible uh, account, um, so to speak. That, that, that is uh, what people would tell you on the ward, so to speak, how they reason in particular cases. Okay, so 
I will not argue in particular for that there is more expertise or that, there, uh, that more experts exist. I take that for granted. This is not the topic here. Um, also, I would say that some moral philosophers indeed are moral experts and uh, possess moral expertise, but not all uh, moral philosophers. And I would also agree on uh, the point that there are some lay people who may have moral expertise that may, may be uh, uh, rare, but it, you, you can't rule it out when you have criteria that are very high. Um, more experts must have cognitive, but not necessarily practical <coughs> skills. Okay? That is the assumption. Then we, it's a very nice uh, uh, and brief paper by Peter Singer. Uh, a, a moral expert is uh, a moral philosopher in contrast to a lay person. Um, the moral expert has a general training as a philosopher. That means he is competent in argument and in the detection of invalid, infer invalid inferences. And this is the, the, the second point, that you're able to detect invalid inferences. That is a very important uh, point, I think. Then the specific experience in moral philosophy, that means, uh, according to Singer, that um, you understand the moral concepts and um, you understand the logic of moral argument. And the fourth point, um, time to think. Yes, I mean, imagine if someone's profession is moral philosophy and he does that or she does that for 20 or 30 years, you may expect that that person uh, um, may know a little bit more than uh, a layperson or non-expert, so to speak. So that is his point, uh, time to think. That was Singer and uh, McConnell, just to describe this cognitive skill model. Um, he says, the moral expert, that is a moral philosopher, and in particular, it is a normative ethicist. So he is uh, moving away from ideas that also a moral <coughs> philosopher that is involved with meta-ethics or descriptive ethics could count as a moral, as, as a moral expert. No, it's the normative ethicist, so to speak. Then, the ability to enable others to understand what they have, good moral reasons to do. That is uh, pretty clear, I think. Third point, ability to, sting, to distinguish good and bad arguments. That means help to arrive at moral uh, knowledge. The fourth point, ability to recognize fallacious reasoning. Again, that, uh, according to McConnell, that makes one less apt to be led astray uh, by emotional appeals and other irrelevant uh, um, considerations, uh, according to McConnell. And uh, the fifth point, better understanding of moral concepts, again, that is necessary to achieve, in his view, moral knowledge. And one is less likely to be confused in discussing complex uh, moral problems. His other points are ability to ascertain relevant similarities and differences concerning analogies and comparisons. The seventh point, 
the ability to identify novel alternatives with respect to complex problems, and that means it is helpful also in, in order to gain moral knowledge. Time to think. Um, the more time um, you have to think about complex issues, the better it is, so to speak. And that is also a very, very important one. I mean, moral philosophers are not infallible, right? I mean, they, they make mistakes, so to speak. You can say, okay, when the person is very well trained, then that would limit uh, the likelihood that he makes mistakes or she makes mistakes. Yes, that's true, but still, um, moral philosophers are not infallible. Colby, and this is um, um, uh, an author who really tries to push um, the point that no, wait a, wait a moment, uh, a moral expert is not only um, or should not only be a person who has cognitive skills, but the moral expert should be a person that has also practical skills. And he says, the uh, moral expert reliably provides correct prescriptions in the field of ethics, provides reasoned justification for his or her prescriptions, logon didonai, what we know from the uh, ancient discourse, Plato. Um, and third, uh, he or she is reliably motivated to act on his or her own prescriptions. And these points, according to Colby, are necessary and sufficient uh, requirements. Okay? And I will, in the following, discuss his uh, position and also uh, reject his uh, points in detail. So the thesis that he um, entertains is, if a moral expert is not motivated by his or her own advice, then this must be considered as a counter-evidence to his or her uh, own moral expertise. Okay. So I will uh, uh, try to attack this uh, thesis in the following. His reasons are, uh, he has three reasons. He says, um, if the person is not acting according to his own expert advice, you can say, for example, that there is a lack of universality, and he frames it in a way that the lack of universality means uh, the person does not treat like cases uh, alike. Okay. If the moral expert believes that his or her advice is good, but would fail to act upon his or her own advice, so to speak, um, that the moral expert is not treating like cases alike. The second point, lack of sincerity. That means if the moral expert fails to be motivated by his own own prescriptions, it casts doubts on his genuineness of uh, his or her beliefs. Um, we will see whether this is true or not true. And the last point, uh, the lack of a genuine or lack of genuine moral knowledge, and that means uh, he has like three points. The first point is um, knowledge about more complex and demanding moral cases. That is um, linked or associated with genuine moral knowledge, but also a demand um, or demands a sustained concern for and 
attention to moral phenomena. And the last, it involves practical and uh, worldly experience. Okay, so that is basically at stake if a person does not follow his or her own expert advice. And uh, he says there are basically four types of moral experts. And the first type, that is the moral savant. So, an interesting case that a person basically gives you, almost always, let's put it this way, um, the right, correct advice, but the person is unable to provide you with reasons. Okay. And uh, uh, Colby says that uh, th this is not good because we are interested in, in reasons as well. So we want to rule out the moral savant. Then he wants to rule out the motivationally indifferent moral expert uh, that I would like to uh, uh, defend, so to speak. And he says, uh, I cite... Uh, I quote, because moral experts' expertise derives from the accurateness of their moral sensitivity and the extent of their commitment to leading a moral life, the notion of a morally indifferent moral expert is most unlikely. But he concedes two points. The first point, moral expertise, according to Colby, may be compatible um, with some moral weakness, but not with a person who routinely fails to act according to his or her own uh, expert advice. And the second point is, in case the moral expert routinely fails to follow his or her own advice, one should at least see, quote, signs that recognizes this weakness, for example, retrospective reactions of guilt or self-reproach. So I will discuss this uh, uh, later on. The third, also an interesting point, the moral expert in the paradigm. Um, this expert fails to be a genuine moral expert because he or she adheres to a particular favored, you can say, moral worldview. And this particular moral worldview can be the caste system or sex system of, he says, seemingly justified uh, moral prescriptions. And uh, epistemologically speaking, he claims uh, this expert uh, cannot be uh, distinguished from the genuine moral expert, even though the genuine moral expert uh, fulfills these necessary and sufficient uh, criteria or conditions. Right? But he claims that it is impossible to uh, distinguish uh, three and four. And we'll see whether uh, this is really the case. So I will uh, uh, structure that with my thesis and then provide the reasons which uh, will basically attack his uh, position. The thesis is uh, not really surprising, so to speak. Besides cognitive skills, practical skills of more experts may be highly desirable but they are not necessary conditions for being a moral expert. Um, and that may, may seem, oh, that is, when you think about that, yes, um, that is like pretty obvious, but no, there are quite a few uh, philosophers who say, um, no, 
they, they need to have also, the moral expert also must have practical skills. So the idea here is, no, there are motivationally indifferent moral experts. Okay? Practical skills, of course, most probably would involve that the moral experts are not uh, motivationally indifferent in cases where they believe that their moral expert advice is morally correct and that one should act accordingly. So if you have the practical skills, in other words, you would most probably act according to your expert advice. If you do not have the practical skills, so to speak, um, there is um, uh, the range is open, so to speak, whether you act accordingly or not. Um, the reasons, moral judgments, I will go through the reasons in the next uh, couple of slides. Um, moral judgments and the idea of motivational efficacy. Then, is there really a lack of universality? It's a really interesting question. Also, is he not comparing apples uh, with oranges, so to speak? Or what is this particular type of moral expert that uh, routinely fails uh, uh, to act according to his own or her own expert advice? Is that not something strange or questionable, so to speak? So the first point, um, I can say it is an empirical question. The idea that moral experts must, so to speak, necessarily be motivated by their own moral advice in, in case the advice is sincere is eventually an empirical psychological question that would also involve uh, research in the role of mo uh, moral emotions, for example, in the context of ethical reasoning and decision making. Okay. Um, then you could... Uh, uh, also adhere to the classical uh, distinction between internalism and externalism about reasons that means the moral internalist briefly believes that there is an internal necessary connection uh, between one's conviction that X ought to be done and one's motivation uh, uh, to do X, so to speak. So if you are an internalist, and it seems to be that Colby is an internalist, uh, then you would favor uh, this position. But uh, if you adhere to more externalism, uh, then you would claim that there is no necessary connection between your convictions and your moral motivations or motives, so to speak. But it's a necessary connection. There can be, of course, some connection, but this connection does not have to be necessary. That is the, uh, uh, the point. Right? Or weakness of will. You can say, okay, it does not necessarily follow that if one is motivationally indifferent, um, experts do not believe in their own moral prescriptions as, as such. You know, they, they can suffer from weakness of will. And then, of course, we can think, yes, uh, we will grant that on one occasion or two occasions, but if the person fails routinely, then it, it seems to be something different than uh, the weakness of will. The lack of universality, an expert advice, you could say, also concerns the particular person's individual worldviews, which may simply, you can say, differ from the worldviews of the moral expert. That is, the differences may influence the ethical reasoning 
and decision-making in particular cases. So hence the moral expert may not be motivated to act in the very same way <coughs> since his or her personal worldviews uh, could simply differ. Uh, example, whether it's end-of-life decision-making, right? After all, you can say people are different and uh, cases may not be uh, sufficiently similar in practice. Another point, are cases really sufficiently alike? And he says, um, this moral expert would not treat cases alike, and that would be um, an instance or um, undermining universality itself. Um, but you can say, a particular moral advice does not necessarily require to be universal. That is only the case if morality as such is by nature universal, which is still an open question. If you think about uh, the theory of, for example, Beecham and Childress, they operate with uh, a common morality. That means um, a, uh, there are some key um, elements, universal key elements uh, to which, for example, morally serious people would adhere to, but there are also particular moralities um, that um, should live up to this common morality. So you have a, a mixed approach, a hybrid approach in that respect. So whether there is in practice sufficient similarity with respect to very particular cases could be called into question as well. One could argue that complex cases will always be different or slightly different. Yeah, we can say slightly different. But this is already enough, so to speak. It seems that there are no two really alike cases, including the wider circumstances, uh, so to speak. On a more abstract level, you can say, okay, they are pretty similar. But on a more uh, detailed level, that seems to be uh, quite different. Think about uh, ethical uh, consultants at uh, hospitals, uh, they are called upon when there are difficult questions. And uh, of course, when you have this analogical reasoning, you look for other paradigm cases and see what is similar, what is not similar, where, is the where are the differences. Um, but the idea that this case is really sufficiently similar to that case, that is really something that uh, needs to be uh, proven, so to speak. Then the difference uh, that difference makes it is possible for different individuals to be morally motivated, so to speak, in different ways, depending on at least two reasons. First, the individual uniqueness, then the particularities of a given case. That is, the moral expert may be motivationally indifferent because there are no really two alike cases. Think about examples in uh, disability studies when uh, you think about uh, um, um, uh, people who work in that area and uh, maybe they are not uh, are disabled or impaired, uh, they may have um, a different view simply because they are not effect affected by an impairment. Right? So the idea that the I or you perspective uh, is morally relevant is an interesting point in case. Um, so that means the moral expert gives an advice to a particular person for his or her particular case. It's about weighing of reasons, it's about balancing of principles, 
and it's a very specific advice that is only generalizable uh, if the circumstances are really sufficiently similar. The third reason uh, the moral expert advice is a moral belief. And moral expert advice eventually concerns the truth of a particular moral prescription. It does not necessarily suggest that one is a being motivated by that very prescription as well in order to be remain a moral expert. Okay. So it is about the truth of a particular belief. Then, of course, the motivationally indifferent moral expert versus the virtuous moral expert. It would be desirable for a moral expert, so to speak, to also develop practical skills so that the person would follow so her own prescriptions. But practical skills, as it seems, are not a necessary condition for the truth of a given more expert advice. So a more expert is not necessarily a virtuous person, for which it is certainly true that the person should also be motivated by her own moral prescription. Right? So if you have like the practically wise person, according to Aristotle, that person would also act according to his or her uh, expert advice. No question about that. Okay. Are there any more experts who routinely fail to act against their own moral expert advice? And Bela Zabados uh, uh, says a moral expert that is basically a virtuous person who does not practice virtue is surely absurd. But he entertains also uh, a wide range of uh, skills or interests that a moral expert should have. For example, living a morally good life, love for the good, respect for persons or insight into basic human needs. And altogether would prompt a more expert to act accordingly. Okay. Uh, furthermore, that would also presuppose that the more expert is always in the very same situation as his or her client, which is a bit strange when you work uh, uh, on the ward and you are an ethics consultant and you go through all these different cases, um, you could ask, okay, um, is it really the case that the ethics consultant is in the very same situation? Uh, that is uh, uh, pretty questionable. So that could be one point. Another point is it seems also empirically strange uh, to assume that uh, more experts would routinely fail, so to speak, to listen to their own moral prescriptions. Um, but this is uh, obviously an empirical question, and uh, um, that is, so to speak, um, uh, a different on a different uh, uh, level. But it seems to be rather a case of a mental disorder, so to speak, when someone who is, uh, let's say, concerned about all these moral questions and uh, then really routinely is unable to, to follow uh, uh, the points. To uh, conclude, cognitive skills 
so to speak, are necessary requirement. A proper model expert, so to speak, has necessarily moral knowledge, cognitive skills and abilities, practical skills are not necessary. Um, and I would even add that if this would be, if this is a requirement for being a moral expert, that would be pretty morally demanding, so to speak. Right? That is really something that uh, one also needs to take into consideration. Of course, um, it is desirable that a moral expert follows his or her own expert advice, but uh, it is certainly true that the expert remains an expert if he or she does not act accordingly. And uh, the last point, as mentioned before, uh, you can question whether um, the moral expert is really routinely failing to act according to his or her uh, own expert advice. So, thank you very much for your attention. I'm looking forward to your questions and the discussion. Thank you.